Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, it's an overcast and gloomy day this day in May in downtown Los Angeles. What you're about to hear is part one of a two-part podcast. Uh, this was a talk, retreat, reflection uh, that I led in Ventura, California for the Ventura contemplative community. They invited me to speak to their group about the five precepts, Buddhist morality, and justice in Buddhism. So what you're about to hear is part one of a two-part podcast, my presentation to the Ventura contemplative community in Ventura, California. This occurred on April 21st. Saturday, 2007. So in order to uh, speak about the uh, five precepts, we, we sort of need to speak about uh, where they came from and why. And that requires us to talk a little bit about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which you may or may not have heard of before. Um, but I'll give you a, a thumbnail sketch of both. Uh, the Four Noble Truths was the first talk the Buddha gave after his nirvana. It's, it's in Pali, the canonical language of early Buddhism. It's called the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel talk. And in that talk, he said, I have discovered four truths. And I would like to add, he discovered four universal truths. The first truth he said, I discovered, is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory. Now, he didn't say life was always unsatisfactory, because there are many moments in our life when we're filled with joy and happiness, but they always change. So he said life is ultimately unsatisfactory because we're born. If we weren't born, we wouldn't get old, we wouldn't get sick, and we wouldn't die. Somebody asked why I was born. Pretty profound question. I said, well, I was born because my parents had sex and I had karma. That's why I'm here today. Now, I couldn't prevent my parents from having sex, but maybe I could have prevented myself from having karma. And that happens when you achieve nirvana. You end your karma. So we're born, and because we're born, we have to get sick, we have to get old, we have to die. And if that's not bad enough, everything in our life that we cherish, love, and want to hold on to will be taken away from us. And the culprit is impermanence and change. And if that's not bad enough, there are people in this world we don't like, places in this world we don't want to be in. We are around those people and in those places far too often. And there's nothing we can do about it. So that's how it starts, if you're a Buddhist. The Buddha laid it out in a very practical and um, honest analysis of what it means to be a human being. He then went on to say the second truth. We are selfish, each and every one of us. We're clinging to the good, pushing away the bad. We never get it right. It's our desire. It's our thirst. It's our craving that creates the suffering force. Second truth. 
Third truth is nirvana. Nirvana is the end of that desire. It's the end of that craving. It's the end of that thirst. It is also the end of suffering and the end of karma. And if we can end our karma, we can end all future rebirths. Never have to suffer again. And the fourth truth is the Eightfold Path, the way to attain nirvana, laid out the roadmap to success, the roadmap to our personal freedom, ultimate happiness, the end of suffering. I've come to the conclusion, if I'm speaking to students or people under 30, I talk about how to be happy. If I'm speaking to people over 30, I talk about how not to suffer. Same message, though. So what's this eightfold path? Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. We can take those eight path factors and put them into three categories. Personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. In the first category, personal discipline, we find three path factors. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. The five precepts are to avoid taking life, to avoid taking what is not given, to avoid sexual misconduct, to avoid lying, to avoid consuming intoxicants. We find four of the precepts in the Eightfold Path. Right speech. The Buddha said there are four kinds of speech that always increase our suffering. They are false, malicious, harsh, gossip, or idle chatter. Those four kinds of speech always increase our suffering. When I was at Juvenile Hall, I told the young people they could reduce their suffering today, this very moment. Simply say please and thank you to the staff, and you will suffer less. I was using a Buddhist philosophical technique to end suffering in Juvenile Hall. My mom taught that to me first. She said, always say please and thank you. I never realized the power of those words. Right action. The Buddha said there are three kinds of action that increase suffering. They are killing, stealing, sexual misconduct. Those three kinds of action always increase our suffering. Now, I'm going to go into great detail, killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct, in the five precepts. But just to give you a hint of what's about to come. One of the problems with killing is it's really hard to be born. And you may not have thought about that, but how long was it before you got here? And how long will it be until you come back again? Well, if you're a Christian, this more than likely is your very first time. And I say, welcome. <laughs> If you're a Hindu, you may be back again, and I say, good to see you in this incarnation. And if you're a Buddhist, I might say, my, my, good rebirth. Human being, you got a chance at nirvana. Most cool. So we weren't here for a really long time. And we're going to be gone for a really long time. So we've got 50, 60, 70 years to work the stuff out, don't we? To get our eternity all worked out if you're a Christian, a Jew, or a Muslim. Not much time, a lot of pressure. I wish you luck. 
as a Buddhist, I see this as just a series of rebirths. People have asked me, do you, you ever have the feeling you've done this before? I say, absolutely not. This always seems like the first time. Sometimes that day feels like the first day. I've never done it before. So I have no memory of past lives. I think it's an interesting concept. There seems to be a, a lot of resistance to reincarnation and rebirth. People don't want to believe that. They don't see how it could be useful. And to be honest with you, at first, I thought it wasn't very useful either. But then I took rebirth out of the realm of past and future and put it into this very lifetime of mine. And I said to myself, how many times have I been reborn in this very lifetime? And then I went back and looked at an eighth grade graduation picture. Now that little guy is dead. He's been dead for a long time. We're not going to see the likes of him anymore. But because of his birth, I'm here today. And then there was me at 20, and then there was me at 30, and then there was me at 40, and then there was me at 50. And each one of those incarnations seems to be pretty unique. It doesn't seem to be the same person traveling through this, this stream of life. This, and, and yet, there are times when I regret what I've done in one of my past lives in this lifetime. Unskillful. I was talking earlier, I was sent to military school for a year and a half because I was a real jerk when I was a kid. You know, I, I really did question authority. You know? and, 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 and I realized that military school experience started to make a man out of me, whatever that means to you today in 2007. It means a lot of things to a lot of people, I'm finding out. But it, it did change me. And when I look back at the, at the kid that went to military school, I have to thank him, but I also have to forgive him. Because he caused a lot of suffering to a lot of people. And if I can't forgive him, I carry that burden with me. I carry those issues with me. And you might wonder, well, how can you forgive yourself when you were 17? Well, I had a memorial service for that 17-year-old boy. I put him to rest. And I thought about the good parts, and I thought about the bad parts, and I thought about the fact that he's dead now and can't change any of it. And so I had a memorial service, and I buried him. And he's happy now. And now it's on to the next part of my life that I need to have a memorial service for and bury. But we don't have to carry those issues with us. We just have to give them a send-off. We have to understand that's not who we are today, but it's because of them that we are here today. It's like a relay race, and each one had a baton and handed it off. Sometimes they dropped the baton. It wasn't a smooth exchange, bumps in the road. Sometimes it was a perfect exchange, and the momentum from one part of our life carried into the next part of our life. Very cool. So I look at rebirth as not necessarily being past life and future life, but in this very lifetime, I have been reborn many, many times. And if I'm to believe Buddhism, when I woke up today, I was a different person than when I was awake yesterday. So even within our day, as we start our day, we might be tired or enthusiastic, and as we end our day, we might be just depressed or exhausted. And yet, we went through all those rebirths, moment by moment, through this one day, through this one lifetime. 
and perhaps through many lifetimes. Killing prevents that person, if you kill a person, from realizing their full potential. They may not have gone to church enough to be reborn in heaven. Where do they go now? The Catholic Church just yesterday announced that that limbo is being looked at again. Limbo. I thought that was a dance under a bar. <laughs> but I'm thinking, yeah, you know what they said, that, that if you're a baby and haven't been baptized and you had original sin, you may not go to heaven. And I'm thinking, that, geez, that's too bad for the kids. You know, so where do they go? I guess they go to limbo, wherever limbo is. So, does anybody know how a Buddhist goes to heaven? Because we do have heaven. We have 31 heavens. And we have 31 hells. And we go to heaven because of what we think, what we say, and what we do, not what we believe in. It's our karma that determines our heaven for us, or our hell. And you can't petition karma. You can't petition karma and say, I really messed up, karma, please forgive me. Karma has no ears. Karma can't see you on your knees saying, just give me one more chance, karma. It's a, it's a, karma is a, a just a lawgiver. He doles it out, consequences and the law itself. Very interesting. So we do go to heaven, but we go to Buddhist heaven. So I probably won't see you there. But that's okay. Does anybody here believe in the diversity of afterlife? Do you think there's only one place to go, or do you think there are many places to go? I think a lot of people think there's one place to go, one mountain with many paths. I always like that image. But I think that's just a, for me, I'm going to phrase it as just sort of a kappa, because it means we're all going to the same place. And I don't think we are. I think we're all going to different places, just like life is today. In my neighborhood in downtown uh, Los Angeles, Koreatown, we have uh, Chinese and Koreans and Hispanics and whites. And we have almost everybody living in my neighborhood. And what I've noticed is they're all different. They're not the same. And, and that adds to the flavor to community. That makes it even a better place to live. And I can encourage them to be the best El Salvadorian they can be. Because that may be the way they'll enjoy life the most. And if I'm speaking to a Christian, I can encourage them to be the best Christian they can be so they can go to Christian heaven and enjoy the rest of eternity. I would discourage them from being wanting to go to Buddhist heaven because they may not have had enough practice yet to go anyplace. So if you're half Buddhist and half Christian, where do you go? That's my question. And if you're a scholar, you may not go anywhere. Just to the big library <laughs> up in the sky. So I like the idea of diversity in afterlife because it makes sense out of the diverse community that I live in. I don't want everybody to be the same. I don't want everybody to think the same. I don't like uniformity. I like unity and diversity. And that's why I'm sort of against one. I like many that are connected. I think that's so cool. So when I go and somebody says, Kusla, you're going to hell, I say, no, I'm sorry, I'm going to Buddhist heaven.
And I feel good about that. Of course, I realize karma may have something to say about where I go. But that allows me to make sense of all this diversity that I see. So there is some place that we go as Buddhists, and I know there's some place that you go. And I brought this up one time, and a Christian woman said, well, you know, it doesn't matter so much what we think, say, and do as a Christian, because we have grace. And I went, yeah, Dr. Gene Scott really believed in grace. I don't know if you know who he is. He was on TV for a long time. Interesting lifestyle, but he knew he was going to heaven. Grace. We don't have that. We can't rely on grace as a Buddhist. So, I'll go more into the problems with taking life. Taking what is not given can be a problem because all of us think we own stuff. You know? I mean, what do you do when you go get something? They give you a receipt. And you say, oh, I own it now. So now I have to protect it. Maybe I need some insurance for it. Or maybe it's just another one of my things. So maybe I should get a storage locker to keep it safe in. You know? And then somebody takes some of your stuff that you think you own and are just using and it really makes you feel uncomfortable. And you say, well, what do I really own? If I didn't own this, do I own anything in this life? And that's when I looked in the mirror one day and said, do I own me? And the answer was no. That when I looked carefully, I couldn't prevent myself from getting wrinkles. I couldn't prevent myself from getting sick. I couldn't prevent myself from dying. How could I think I owned myself? Wow. So if I can't own me... Do I own anybody else? Well, probably not. Do I own anything else? Probably not. I'm probably just using that stuff I think I own until I can't find it anymore, until it's broken, or the new model comes out. And I want that instead. Jeez, ownership really causes us a lot of problems. So taking things from people who think they own the stuff they're using creates suffering. Sexual misconduct is a really interesting topic in Los Angeles because apparently everything is okay. Have you noticed that? And if you can find your particular partner, whoever or whatever it might be, you have a chance at ultimate happiness. How cool is that? And everybody is really struggling to find the right person, the right partner, going through all these gymnastics and gyrations. And I'm thinking... It's useless. It's hopeless. And why? What's wrong with sex? Absolutely nothing. Sex is great. The problem with sex is the desire for sex, according to Buddhism, because no matter how much sex you have, that desire does not go away. In fact, it only gets stronger. And now, because of modern technology, you can be 80 years old, and for your birthday, they give you Viagra. There is no rest. (laughs) So, sexual misconduct I'll get into, but the problem with sex for Buddhism is the desire for sex. It's not the sex itself. Right livelihood... As a Buddhist, we want to choose something that reduces suffering in the world, not that increases suffering in the world. I was at USC giving a a talk to the Buddhist club there. There was a business major, and he asked me, is it okay for a Buddhist to make a lot of money? I said, oh, yes. Think how much more money you can give away. And isn't that the point with money? 
is using that as energy to transform us and the world around us. So there's nothing wrong with money. There's something wrong with owning money. There's nothing wrong with money if we use money, not own it. So what kind of livelihood would be good for a Buddhist to have? Well, I was thinking about that. Maybe a doctor would be good. Lawyer, maybe. (laughs) You know, garbage man, yeah. You know, uh, civil servant, yeah. Bus driver, good. Monk, the best. (laughs) You know? So how can I make a living? How can I make a living if I have a family, support my family, and do something that benefits community, reduces suffering? Can we figure that out? Now, somebody asked Thich Nhat Hanh once about making atom bombs. Is it a good livelihood to make atom bombs? And Thich Nhat Hanh said something really interesting, and I'm just paraphrasing now. He said, well, I think I would prefer a Buddhist to make atom bombs because they might have some compassion and wisdom that they could share along the way. Maybe how not to use them. You know? So, I suppose, given the skillful nature of Buddhism, almost anything you decide to do that would reduce suffering would be right livelihood, according to Buddhism. That's the first part of the Eightfold Path that um, falls under personal discipline. The second part of the Eightfold Path has three path factors, and that's meditation. That's mental purification. Right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Right effort has nothing to do with Gold's Gym or 24-hour fitness. Right effort is being able to identify mind states, to prevent unskillful mind states from arising, to abandon unskillful mind states once they have arisen, to develop skillful mind states that have not yet arisen, and to maintain skillful mind states once they're there. So now we need to define what a skillful mind state is and an unskillful mind state is. Unskillful would be one that's rooted in lust, greed, hatred, and delusion. Skillful would be one that's rooted in love, generosity, compassion, and wisdom. I think ignorance was the unskillful, wisdom is the skillful. Skillful, unskillful. Skillful, unskillful. To give you a personal example of an unskillful mind state, I was at Vaughn's supermarket earlier in the week. I just happened to find myself on the bakery aisle. And there in front of me was a rather large stack of Entenmann's chocolate cakes. The one with the fudge frosting on top. And I said to myself, I'm buying two. One for tonight and one for tomorrow. And I reflected on that mind state and realized it was rooted in greed. Because if I had that mind state rooted in generosity, I'd say, I'm buying two, one for me and one for you. You see. So I ended up buying one. But it's not that far away. I could always go back. (laughs) (laughs) So, So it's simply becoming aware of how you think. Skillful, unskillful. Skillful, unskillful. And we have... You know, on the freeway, how many unskillful thoughts do you have? If, if it's, you know, bumper to bumper. So, two kinds of Buddhist meditation. The Buddha was taught how to do one. He rediscovered the other one. I like the word rediscovered. That's a very significant word because that means this Buddha I'm talking about was not the first Buddha. That there were 28 Buddhas before him. 
Okay, so we have a multitude of Buddhas. They came to earth when Buddhism had been forgotten, rediscovered the path, taught, and then died. And then when the last person that knew Buddhism died, the next Buddha comes, rediscovers the path, teaches again, People start practicing. When that last person dies, the next Buddha comes. So we already know who the next Buddha will be. His name is Maitreya Buddha, and he's in heaven right now. And a lot of people know Buddhism, so he's not scheduled to arrive anytime soon. But when he does, that means that Buddhism is no longer effective on earth, and he needed to rediscover it and get the wheel turning again. So the Buddha was taught how to do tranquility meditation, samatha meditation, and he rediscovered insight meditation, which allowed him to achieve nirvana and achieve his liberation and freedom. But he continued to do samatha meditation until he died. So I'm thinking, well, why would that be the case? Insight meditation is designed to end the suffering. And as it turns out, Samatha meditation has the potential to end the pain. Hmm, interesting stuff. So the Buddha practiced Samatha until his death. In fact, when he was dying, he went into the fourth jhana, which is perfect equanimity or balance of mind. No pain, no happiness. Very cool. Let me give you a thumbnail sketch of Samatha meditation and insight meditation. Something called the four jhanas, the four levels of tranquility. In the first jhana, there are five characteristics. Applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. We get our object of meditation. It might be the sensation of breath. We apply our thought and hold it there. Applied thought, sustained thought. When you do that in a concentrated way, a sense of happiness arises in the mind, a sense of bliss and pleasure arises in the body, and a little bit of equanimity becomes available to you, a little bit of balance. In order to go into the second jhana, you need to give two things up. You need to give up applied thought and sustained thought. You've been practicing long enough now that the mind simply rests on the object of meditation. So applied thought and sustained thought is no longer necessary. You have a greater sense of happiness. You have a greater sense of physical pleasure. And you have a greater sense of balance, equanimity. Now you need to give something else up. Buddhism is a path of renunciation. Buddhism is a path of renunciation. What does that mean? That means we are already perfect. It's a very positive message in all this renunciation and suffering. That we already have as much love as we'll ever need. What we need to get rid of is the lust that prevents us from experiencing love. We already have as much generosity as we'll ever need. What we need to get rid of is the greed which prevents us from expressing our generosity. We already have as much compassion and loving kindness as we'll ever need once we get rid of the anger and the hatred. We already have as much wisdom as we'll ever need once we get rid of the delusion and the ignorance. So underlying this talk today will be the fact that we are perfect. Our potential is there. I call that potential. I call that perfection our Buddha nature. Now our job is to realize that potential. And it's about getting rid of the things that prevent us from realizing that potential. So here we are now. Applied thought and sustained thought is out of the way. We have three more characteristics to let go of, perhaps. In order to get to the next jhana, we have to give up pleasure. We have to give up physical 
pleasure. Well, is that a big um, problem? Don't we just love physical pleasure? Doesn't it just make our day? You know? I tell you. So why would I want to give up pleasure? If I can figure out how to give up physical pleasure, I'm giving up physical pain as well. Because the pain is connected to the pleasure. We all want to give up pain, but who wants to give up pleasure? Not too many of us. If you can figure out how to do it, and if you do it, you go into the next jhana. Got two characteristics left. You have happiness, you have equanimity. Which one of those are you going to give up? Happiness. You've got to give up your happiness too. Why? Because if you give up your happiness, you're giving up your sadness. You'll never be sad again. You'll never have pain again. Is it worth it? To most Americans, it's not worth it. If you were in Bangladesh right now, or Iraq right now, or Pakistan, or Africa, you might say, yeah, I'm willing to give up my, my pleasure and happiness to get rid of this pain and sadness, to have equanimity, to have perfect balance of mind, to see the world it really is, to be able to live in any part of the world with perfect balance and not feel the suffering of the people around me and able to facilitate the end of their suffering as well because I'm not affected by that suffering. So, you see, this is talking to a particular audience when you get to this level of your practice, this level of your meditation. Say you're terminal cancer, and you want to die with clarity. You don't want to die drugged out. You want to have clarity so you're aware of your last thought. They say the last thought in this lifetime is the first thought in the next lifetime. If you have too much morphine going through you, you're just whacked out. So if you could go down to a place of equanimity and not feel the pain, and not feel the sadness, and have total clarity, you might be able to watch your last thought go with your last breath. Wow. That's advanced meditation. Cool. So now you figure out how to do it, and you did it, and now there's one thing left. Equanimity, perfect balance of mind. You did it. You will not suffer at this level. You will not feel pain at this level. You will not feel sadness at this level. But this level only works while you're sitting in the zendo on a cushion in a deep, deep state of concentration. As soon as you get up off your cushion, go out the front door, get in your car, hit the 405, all that stuff comes back. And you go, oh, man. And that's what the Buddha realized, too. He wanted a permanent way to carry equanimity into the world without it being so conditional on the setting or the technique. And that's when he rediscovered insight meditation, which allowed him to achieve his full perfection as a human being. There are four kinds of insight meditation. Mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of mental objects, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of sensations of the body. So let's talk about sensations. Three kinds of sensations. Good sensations, bad sensations, Neutral sensations. That's it. Those are the three kinds of feelings we have. And if we watch and watch those feelings arise, we can categorize them. Good, bad. Pleasant, unpleasant. Okay. After our adventure in insight meditation, then we go into a deep state of reflection or rumination. And we look at each one of those sensations trying to find the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom. And they are 
suffering, impermanence, and not self. Do those exist in every one of those sensations? So let's say we're sitting on the floor. Let's say our knees are just killing us. Let's say we looked at that sensation and we realized that was unsatisfactory. So we could say, yeah, that was suffering right there. I experienced great suffering. But does that mean that if the sensation's not there, we don't feel the suffering? Well, we say, yeah, that's, that's how it works until we get to the next level of Buddhist wisdom, which is impermanence. Did all those sensations of suffering, were they impermanent? Did they stay the same? Did they have a vibratory nature? Did they seem to go away sometimes? I know sometimes when I'm riding the motorcycle, that vibration can affect my bladder, and I can suffer greatly until I find a restroom or a tree on the side of the road. But it doesn't have a strong, you know, continuous sensation of suffering. It seems to have a vibratory nature. Sometimes it almost seems to go away, and I feel so relieved I can make it to my destination without having to stop. And then a few moments later, it's back with a vengeance. No, I guess I can't make it. So those sensations seem to, you know, want to get my attention rather than just being the same all the time. If we have an uncomfortable sensation, we're happy when it goes away. But if we have a pleasant sensation, that will go away too. So we'd have to come to the conclusion that all sensations are ultimately unsatisfactory because of impermanence when you factor that in. And you go, well, that's not much fun, is it? That, you know, here I'm feeling good, but I realize in a couple hours that's going to go away too. So now we come to the third and most elusive aspect of Buddhist wisdom for some people, and that is the not-self aspect of Buddhist wisdom. Did these sensations I became aware of have an essence? Did they have a soul? Did they exist unconditionally? You know, and then I thought about the painful knees and I said to myself, well, I think my knees really started to hurt because I was sitting on the floor too long in an uncomfortable position. If I hadn't been sitting there in that way, that pain wouldn't have happened quite as fast or be quite as severe. So I'd have to say conditions entered into it. Conditions had something to do with what I was feeling. If the conditions would change, so would the sensation. So the sensations didn't seem to be unconditional. They seemed to be conditional. But did they have an essence? Did they have a soul? Now, one of my favorite books back in the 70s was Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Robert Piercing. And in one of the chapters, he talks about a class assignment he gave to write about quality. He said, you pick anything you want and you write about the quality of that thing. Nobody could write about the quality. They couldn't figure out where the quality existed or what the characteristics of quality were. They knew it when they saw it, but they couldn't define it. And that got me to thinking. Now, this isn't in the book, but I wish it had been. Robert Pierzig and his buddy who rode a BMW, I imagine them going to a Kmart parking lot with a bunch of tools and taking their motorcycles apart into the 10,000 pieces and then giving each of them a magnifying glass and say to them, find me the quality of your motorcycle. In which part does it reside? And then watching them piece by piece, part by part, looking for the quality of the motorcycle. And yet, somehow, it didn't exist in the pieces. It only existed when the pieces came together and created one. Now we're back to one again. Powerful one. 
But the quality didn't reside in the pieces. It resided in the one. And so if that applies to us as well, if we look for our quality, it wouldn't be in our fingernails or hair or ligaments or our bones. Our quality would arise when the pieces came together and created one, created one kusla. And now if kusla does have quality, it's because of the oneness, not because of the many. So in our object of meditation sensations, did that sensation have an unconditional quality? Or because we made it into something, we made it into one thing like pain, now we found the quality. Now we saw it. Now we were sure it existed. Okay, so what happens if you approach pain in a slightly different way? What happens if you approach it as a sensation rather than pain? Wouldn't it be more like you're sitting on the ground cross-legged and now all of a sudden you have a really, really strong sensation? Oh, that sensation is so strong. Is it pain? No, no, it's just a really strong sensation. But where does the pain exist? Well, it doesn't exist. But the sensation is there, and it seems to be like a process that's always evolving and changing, going from one place to the other. I can't put my finger on it. It's no one place. It's almost like the universe is creating a sensation, and I become the universe. And I am no longer separate from the universe. I have now reconnected in that sort of primordial way to the world around me. And my knee is no longer my knee. It's just one of those sensations of the universe. It may be a bit easier to deal with in that way if you don't identify it, if you don't separate it, if you don't make it real in that way. We make things real. So if you can see that everything ultimately will cause suffering, everything will cause suffering ultimately because everything is impermanent, and there is no one to suffer. There is no one to suffer. That's our liberation factor there. If we're not one, we don't have to suffer. But as soon as we become one, as soon as we become kusla, experiencing the sore knee, ah, it's a lost battle. Time for stretching the legs or take a couple aspirin. You know? That's what happened to the Buddha when he achieved his liberation. He used insight meditation to pierce that ignorance and delusion he was born with and saw the true nature of existence. And now he no longer had to suffer. But he still felt pain. And when he went into the fourth jhana, in the first technique of meditation, tranquility meditation, he could anesthetize the pain. Now, you may not think that's possible, but let me give you a real-life situation. You're in this wonderful movie. I just saw 300 the other day. Anybody else see 300? Probably not. Okay. Well, me and the college kids liked it. It was a good movie. And there was a lot of really action scenes in there, a lot of manly action scenes. I, I, wanted, I want to share something with you. After I left that movie, I felt like a guy. I walked out of that movie, and I wanted to have a loincloth and a six-pack with pecs and a spear. I'm thinking, that really felt good. Now, I know that's a 1950s way to look at being a man, but it was something about that. The role was so well-defined, and the women were strong, too because the women had Spartan children, 
and only Spartan women could have Spartan children. I said, oh, everybody's powerful in this movie. But at some point I was concentrating so hard on the action scenes that I forgot my foot was stuck to the ground because in the previous show somebody had dropped their Coke. And my arm was next to the seat, over the seat next to me, it was empty, the seat, and had fallen asleep. And for a while it tingled, but now the action in the movie was so exciting that I forgot about my body. I was taken away into the history of the Spartans. And then the scene was over, and my mind came back to my present moment situation of sitting in this cold, dark theater with foot stuck to the ground and arm tingling because the blood stopped. But, but I noticed... When my mind was so concentrated on the scene, I couldn't feel any physical sensations. And if I was deep in meditation, concentrating on the breath, which is not as exciting as the Spartans, but nonetheless, if I could concentrate hard enough and long enough on the breath, I too could anesthetize the physical sensations through the art of concentration. And that's exactly what the Buddha did. And why did the Buddha have to do that? Because they didn't have any medicine back then. They didn't have anything. The Buddha carried medicine with him. He carried these little herbs and spices, and then he had to add urine to that. And I'm thinking the cure is worse (laughs) than the illness. You know, so if you could teach somebody how to meditate and, and anesthetize their physical sensations, that was a wonderful gift to give them. And then if you could teach them how to do inside meditation and liberate them from suffering, an even better gift. So these two forms of meditation apply to both mind and body. One the Buddha learned, one the Buddha rediscovered. Finally, the last two path factors are right view and right intention. Right view is understanding the noble eightfold path at a relative and ultimate level. Right intention is to always have the intention of generosity, always have the intention of compassion, and always have the intention of loving kindness. And if those are your only intentions, your speech and action will manifest skillfully in the world, you will suffer less and everybody around you will suffer less as well. That is the entire Buddhist path in less than an hour. Are there any questions? Yes. Anyway, back to the precepts, as you're talking... I start to get this idea when um, you're talking in the beginning about morality and stuff. So these precepts aren't something that we do to be good. Right. They're things that we do to end suffering. Right. So, I mean, the reason that these things that, you know, like don't kill and, and um, don't lie or whatever, um, the reason we're, we're choosing not to do these things is not so that we become good. It's because these things cause suffering. And if we engage in them, then we suffer more. Uh huh, and the people around us suffer more as well. Mm-hmm. Now, isn't that an interesting I way of? I think that's a whole different way of looking at morality. I think so too. <laughs> because it's not about shame or good guilt. Or shame, not about shame or guilt. Yes. But it's about ending suffering. It's about being skillful. It's about being skillful, and if you're skillful, you will end suffering. So, the g- skillful takes the place of good, and this is such an important aspect that helps you relate to people at whatever level you need to relate to them at. That that they're not evil, they're not bad people. If they're causing you suffering, they're just unskillful people. And you encourage them to learn some new skills, if you can. And if you can't, then you accept their unskillfulness as being part of their karma. 
perhaps. And maybe what, what's underneath all this is this Buddhist presupposition that somehow we already are perfect, or there is yes. already a goodness. And there is already a good. We're not trying to become good. Right. We're, we're good trying we're to realize. We're trying to become ourselves. Yes. We're good trying to realize our goodness. Mm-hmm. But our ignorance, our delusion, our hatred, our greed, our lust gets in the way of that perfection. You know, I, I was just testing myself out the other day. Another honest uh, statement. I was talking about Ramdas uh, earlier. And Ramdas is like the best teacher. He always tells stories about himself. Well, I wanted to test my love. And, and, and being a monk, it's difficult to test your love because you're not in a relationship <clears throat> that really encourages you to practice love and lust or love or lust. So I had to have an alternate test. And, and it just so happens that I have a CD of Jennifer Lopez in my CD collection. And she's a rather desirable human being. <laughs> and so, I, so my test was to look at a picture of Jennifer Lopez on the CD and see if it inspired kindness or lust. Did I want to be kind to Jennifer Lopez? Well, I, I hate to say probably not. And so I saw that lust is, is a very powerful a very powerful agent that it can take all the potential for love that we have and turn it into something unkind. And, and not that lust isn't necessary or good on occasion, but, but undisciplined lust can create a whole lot of suffering in this world. And so it's, it's fun for me to see if I'm enlightened yet. And, and I'm so far from it. <laughs> but I practice and I, and I have the confidence that the potential is there, even in me. And that if I don't achieve it in this lifetime, maybe next lifetime. And if I can reduce the suffering in my life and those around me, well, at least I'm making that contribution to the world if I haven't fully achieved it. So that's good. So I need to stay away from Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> <laughs> that was my conclusion. <laughs> Four Noble Truths. The first truth is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory, which is suffering. The second truth is the reason for the unsatisfactoriness is desire, thirst, and craving. The third truth is the end of that thirst, craving, and desire. We call that nirvana. And the fourth truth is the eightfold path leading to nirvana, the, the, the prescription that the world-class doctor known as the Buddha gave us all. To heal the wounds of suffering. The cessation of suffering is called nirvana, oh, okay. and that's the third noble truth. That there is an answer. So he wasn't a pessimist; he was a realist. If he had stopped at the second noble truth, he would have been a pessimist. But he gave us the answer to, and the way to get there. So we have to, at least as a Buddhist, I have to thank him for that. Even though it's a very difficult path to follow, I see the potential. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Right and good are synonymous with wrong and bad. And um, I don't like that word right. I've heard like right thought, right speech. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> it just. Well, same, it's the same way of, I've been reading the Four Agreements and the, the word impeccable, which the writer says can, can be translated. Sin, have impeccable word, therefore no sin. And 
Okay. Well, let me give you another word for right. Okay. Skillful. Skillful, like skillful speech, skillful yeah. action. Yeah. yeah. I think that'll work better. I really like that. Yeah. These 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 texts were translated uh, a couple hundred years ago, maybe a hundred years ago, and and these were scholars of different religious traditions who wanted, who seemed to use some of their terminology, to explain Buddhism, and we have. Uh, I think much better scholarship now, and a lot of Westerners are bringing a different vocabulary with them when they when they translate. So it's it's completely acceptable to translate those words that just drive you nuts into something that still makes sense. And and uh, so I think skillful, for me, works as opposed to right, because right means it's wrong, and that's too heavy for what I'm talking about. It's skillful or unskillful. Now, one more thing before lunch, and we don't have justice in Buddhism, and I'll go into this a little bit further, but we don't have justice. We don't have right and wrong, ultimately, in Buddhism. And why don't we have justice? Because we don't have a divine lawgiver who defines for us what is right and wrong. Instead, we have karma, cause and consequence, more suffering and less suffering, skillful and unskillful. So it's interesting when you bring up the idea of a just war, and I realize the, some people don't believe there is such a thing. Well, a Buddhist wouldn't say there is never such a thing as a just war. A war happens, you know, uh, but it's always wrong. Killing is always wrong, but sometimes it's necessary. When one of the officers asked me on a ride-along, is it okay for me to kill someone because I've been hired to serve and protect the community and given the option of lethal force? And I said, well, as a Buddhist, I would have to say never kill anybody out of hatred and anger, only service and duty to the community. That limits the karmic consequences of that action. So with that, it's lunchtime. Well, that's it. That was part one of a two-part podcast, my presentation to the Ventura Contemplative Community in Ventura, California, on the Buddhist precepts, morality, and justice. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. Uh, if you'd like to know more about me, please visit kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you'd like to download some free books on, on Buddhism, um, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. Free ebooks on Buddhism. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts, um, please visit dharmatalks.info that's dharmatalks.info and if you'd like to email me please email me at kusla at urbandharma.org kusla at urbandharma.org I apologize for not getting back sooner to people that have already emailed me but uh, my life is... uh, pretty busy sometimes, and it's hard to sit down at the computer for a few hours and answer the emails. But I'm working on it, so uh, be patient. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.